Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor, and I'm a mom. We're getting real about all things family from a mental health perspective. So let's get to it. Okay, this is so much fun. So I loved answering the questions in the first episode of Ask Me Anything. So here's our part two. And I think we should just dive in. We've got a few questions to hit today. And uh, remember at the end of the episode to go check out the show notes for any links around resources to any of the topics that I cover off today. Okay, this is an excellent question that... Um, a parent wrote in about they have uh, in this family three kids and their oldest and their youngest have been diagnosed with ADHD and they've noticed a real um, difference between their middle child and their other two kids in terms of interpreting rejection that there seems to be a real heightened sensitivity for their two kids with ADHD. And there's confusion around this. And so the question really was, why why is this so different for them? Because um, sensitivity around feeling rejection is not something that is actually on the diagnostic list for the criteria to meet the the um diagnosis of ADHD. So great question, because that means you are incredibly attuned parents who are noticing some of the nuances and the ripple effects of a lack of executive functioning. So that's the piece we know about ADHD, right? But how it actually translates in life, in functioning, comes out in all sorts of ways, what it means like to have uh, little self-control, to struggle interpreting some of the social cues and the nuances in social interactions, and to be able to let go of things, the process of transition, the lack of being able to process things in transition. And so all those struggles, when you think about what happens when you are quote unquote, rejected, Um, having intense emotion, being hyper-focused, can't transition into being okay very easily. Those things feel tenfold impact for a kid who has ADHD. Because for a neurotypical brain, when you have the skill set and the capacity internally, to take and digest information from the world. Like, um, sorry, you can't join the soccer team this round. Uh, You can try out again next year. For a neurotypical kid, their brain processes that information in a more regulated, balanced way. Yes, they have maybe a strong feeling about that or they're disappointed, but their ability to manage that disappointment looks different than a kid who has ADHD who hears that exact same message from the exact same coach. And so their lived experience of this is incredibly sensitive and personal. It feels personal and it roots a little bit, you know, so it, it doesn't pass the way it does for other kids. 
Um, so that the other thing you need to to remember too, and I think we've talked about this in other episodes, is that um, for ADHD kids, they are, we know this from the research, and you'll know this intuitively as a parent, that you're saying no to your kid who has ADHD more often than you're saying no to other kids. And the reason often for that is out of necessity around being their external brain and having to set boundaries on their behalf because they aren't quite sure where the safety limits are. Um, it's hard for them to uh, contain certain ideas, to be realistic about certain things. And so we're saying no to a lot of their fantastical um, storytelling around what they want to have happen in the world. And we're reining that in a lot. Um, and so if you combine that, you think about kids feeling like they're being told no a lot uh, that can already set a foundation for feeling like I am, my ideas are rejected. I'm not enough. I can't do, it's not okay for me. Um, and then we add to it when we receive very, uh, normal messages from the world about, no, this isn't going to work. And this is why, um, it is really hard for a kid internally to digest that information in a way that is not personal and in a way that lets the feeling pass. So the intensity of it is one of the pieces that makes them feel so sensitive towards it. Um, There is a description in terms of um, uh, um, the experience of this, and it's called rejection-sensitive dysphoria, or RSD. Um, This is not something that we can diagnose kids with. It is a great descriptor, though, and a label and a name for something that we watch kids experience at a higher rate than other kids. Um, And it is a common experience for kids with ADHD. So parents, what you're seeing there is um, is not a surprise in your two in your youngest and your oldest child. Um, it is a very uh, typical expectation that we can have for kids who have um, neurodiverse brains. I don't ever want to leave these questions without offering some kind of um, hope around how to help cope with these things. So I'm going to name a couple of ideas here. One is we have to be aware of its impact on self-esteem. And so, um, yeah, so helping our kids digest the information so it doesn't plant itself in who they are is really, really important. It's about perspective taking um, in a lot of ways. And again, just remember and have patience that their brains don't necessarily have the shape to them yet and the neuro firing that's required to really get this, but with rehearsal and practice and exposure around thinking about different options and stories from different lenses, different perspectives on the story, that can help our kids grow that part of their brain. And so number one, help your kid see different explanations for how they've heard the information. So if they perceive some kind of rejection, um, I want you to help them understand that, you know, there are other 
reasons why that happened. It's not all about um, maybe them not being enough or being included. Maybe there were mitigating circumstances, right? That created this outcome that really actually had nothing to do with them, but it does still impact them. The outcome impacts them. So to validate how they feel, but to help them see that it might not be as personal as they're feeling it to be. Um, it also helps to process their experience. So oftentimes I think we hear that rejection, we just shut it down. But I think what's helpful for them is to let them do their own processing and to help them go through that tunnel. So asking them about their experience of how they're interpreting it can give you a lot of data about maybe helping them shape different perspectives after they've shared their own. Um, and also then opportunities to share about your own or other people's feelings of rejection and how they quote unquote get over it. And I say that in quotes because it's not like it shouldn't impact you. It's more how do we move through that experience? You also want to try and help your kid learn resilience. And so how do you give them a sense of control over changing that storyline, but also to move forward? How do we transition to something else? And what we know always about kids with ADHD is that they do need your external brain to help coach them to the next thing. So if your kid isn't chosen for the team, how do you help them suspend that piece and offer them a transition? So ask them, what other activity they can focus on in the meantime. If they still want to pursue this sport, how are we going to go about doing that? It's like the adjustment route, right? We've hit a brick wall and all they can see is the wall. So of course they're going to have massive emotions. They feel like the world has ended. But what you and your external brain know is that there's other ways around this and it's not the end of the world. So helping your kid come up with their own plans asking them really thought-provoking questions about how do we get around and find a new route in the same direction or a direction that's going to better serve them. And it also helps them face any setbacks that they have in their future. So those are some things to think about. If you're finding that this is a really strong component of parenting for you, this is a hard one for you, it's totally great to reach out and get some help because those are some not short-term hurdles for kids with ADHD in particular. And so if you have a, a child who's really sensitive around this rejection piece, it's okay to digest that with a counselor um, to think about strategically, how are you going to help your kid navigate that and grow that part of their brain so they can help manage that in their future? Okay, so the next question is around, um, I would call it a myth around co-regulation. And I've had several questions come in specifically around this in some way, shape, or form. So I'm going to try to respond um, by pulling all of those uh, different questions together that kind of all overlap. And what I, I think at the crux of it the struggle that I read in these questions is the idea or the belief that when your child is dysregulated, so really like when the emotion has completely taken over and hijacked them and they are not in touch um, with the moment, they are just 
gone. They're lost in the emotion. Um, that the parent, in order to co-regulate, needs to be calm. And, and I get why this is confusing for people, because a lot of the literature out there, a lot of the books about regulation, around emotional control, around emotional regulation, has to do with um, the language that uh, is kind of summed up in the word calm. And the problem with that is it, I think, sends the wrong signal to parents around what they should be while their child is dysregulated that is helpful to them. And so the idea that you need to be calm when there's chaos around you is actually not true. And I actually don't believe it's just not true. It's not effective in the same way. So if your child is um, is specifically anxious, calm might be the most effective route. Your calm can bring them to a place of calm. If it is not anxiety-based, however, and it is about uh, a lack of executive functioning, a lack of emotional control for the child for other reasons, things like... Um, autism, uh, ADHD, um, even developmentally, um, when kids are in those toddler years and it's ripe for dysregulation, it isn't super effective to go in zen, to go in as though you're unimpacted, that you can't read their emotion, that you're not in touch with where they're at, that you are kind of your own being detached from your child and I'm fine, everything's great. Uh, when that gets signaled to a dysregulated child, more often than not, what we find happen is the child becomes more dysregulated because you are not mirroring that you understand their emotion by what they see. So if they're looking at you and you are ultra zen, it says to the child, you don't get me. And there's something longing for a connection and an understanding in the child because they're scared of their own emotion in that moment. And what they need to know is that you get where they're at. And then you can model moving toward a regulated state. A regulated state, so here's the myth I wanna say. Calm is not the same as regulated. Now, you can be calm when you're regulated, but it isn't the same thing. So regulation is not about calm and collected. It is about being in control of the emotion or connected to yourself so that you're not lost. It has not hijacked your brain. Feeling intense emotion is not a problem. That is different than being dysregulated. Being hijacked by intense emotion is where we go tip in from, from feeling something strongly, which is really healthy, and we need to process those emotions and let them throw, flow through us. That is different than having been taken over and that we are scared of ourselves, we are scared of our own nervous system, we are in fight, flight, freeze, dysregulated mode. So, our goal is not to find calm. Our goal is to find connection with self and with whatever external brain is in the room. 
So working with our kids through co-regulation, I don't want parents beating themselves up because they can't feel detached and calm. I want them to feel attached, attuned, and capable of having one foot in their child's emotional world, which can help your child see that you too feel and can resonate with that anger, with that frustration, with that overwhelming worry, right? So what what we as parents need to be careful of is that what we're not saying is be calm, but we're also not saying be dysregulated. So if you are hijacked by your emotion, that is a different, you don't have the ability then to coach in an effective way. But what we do do want to have is a very connected sense to the emotion in the room that's happening for the child. And what you'll naturally find, and I love this piece, is that we are wired for that connection and that attunement. And so you'll notice, like, if you are holding a newborn baby and that baby starts to pull a sad face, we don't smile and or stay detached kind of in a flat way as though their emotion is separate from ours. We mimic them. We, our face naturally wants to pull in the same direction that our baby is. So if our baby starts to cry, we go, oh, right? And, and our face changes in a way that mirrors their inner experience, which is so helpful for the baby. And it is connective. And then you soothe them, right? There's something in you that wants to soothe. Um, that is the same type of formula we're looking for throughout our years. We want to be able to connect and have empathy and demonstrate with our visuals, right? That we get where they're coming from and we're with them, we're alongside them, we're in this pit with you and we're going to move together. I'll help you breathe. I'll help you reconnect. I'll help you feel that hard thing without being hijacked. So I wanted to, I wanted to clarify that. I myself was in that position where every book I read that said, be your child's calm, hit me the wrong way. Uh, it just wasn't realistic. And what I later found out from doing the research is it actually isn't helpful either. So I'd encourage you to do some more reading. Um, my co-regulation strategy course is really, a, it stems from this thing where the, the old belief was to be calm and zen. And I've restructured the tools based on how to be with your child in the deep emotion and move, a, move toward connectedness instead of detachment and calm. So um, you can check that out if that's helpful for you. If you find yourself in this position a lot with your kids and it's a struggle to concretely know what to do in the moment with them that will build those uh, wiring in the, the wiring in the brain, neurodevelopment in the brain over time to help them self-regulate their emotion, then you can check that out. Um, yeah, I thought that was an important one. So I really thank all the parents who brought their question forward around this one because I have a lot of conversations with people um, about this piece where this is a common struggle of parents saying, I just can't be calm. And I always enter with, there's good news, you don't need to be, um, which is such a relief for a lot of parents who live this a lot. Okay, here's a bit of a related question. 
around um, dysregulated kids, kids who lose touch with themselves and get hijacked by their emotions. So lots of raging, um, panic, that, that sort of thing. When that's a chronic thing, there's um, some questions that have come forward that are around how do we operate kind of as a whole family around that? Because we're noticing how much attention gets poured into one kid having to put out fires all the time. And what does that mean for the sibs? The siblings who aren't struggling with this lag of development, who um, are are able to more often self-regulate or adjust to new situations or handle the stress of situations. And how do we as parents who are trying so hard and so lovingly to pour into all our kids um, as best we can in a fair way, um, the reality is that when you have a child or more than one child who demands, um, who requires a more intense presence and response, and, and not just planned, right? So this isn't just predictable. This is like, we could fly off the handle at any point, And therefore, we're always on high alert, attuned to that one child, in particular, ready to kind of pounce into action and be present for them. So I, I want to speak to a few things here, because um, I, I know what can happen is that because the requirement in the moment of a fire is for you to be 100% in and present for that fire, which might not have anything to do with the rest of the kids in the house, um, we only have so much attention, right, to to spread. And so because we can't divide that attention in a crisis, we are all in. And what that will mean for us as parents is that we might be missing eyes on around what's happening for our kids' siblings. And so their lived experience often is invisible to us. And that's that's not a you should be present for them. That's a reality of the situation might mean that they are in situations frequently where they are invisible. They are in another room. They are um, having their own emotional reaction and experience in all likelihood. And we aren't bearing witness to that or being available in the moment to be present for them and with them. So it's something to be mindful of because if we're aware of that, we can go check in on them when the fire is out, right? And we can have conversations with them about what that was like for them. We can validate their emotions and how they felt. And half the battle for us to feel connected with our parents as kids is to feel heard and understood and witnessed. So it it is always great if you can do that in the moment while the experience is happening, but it isn't your only option. And so when you cannot be present for more than one kid at a time. I would just urge you to check in actively and attuned and attentively to the kids who may have been invisibly in the background, witnessing sometimes violence. So there might be a lot of yelling. There might be a lot of physical reaction from a child who has high needs. There might be biting, kicking, screaming, punching, running away into high-risk situations. And that is distressing for a child who understands the risk attached to that, right? And so 
a lot of the times this gets embedded in, in the sibling's nervous system, they don't have the opportunity to process it. So uh, giving them time and space, asking them after when things are calm or just want to sit one-on-one with you, that was a really tough situation. That sounded really loud. Um, I'm wondering if you were, did you experience any worry? Were you afraid? Did that make you angry? What are you feeling? Because everything you feel is totally fine and valid. And I, I, I want to be there for you. And when we have those conversations and they become regular, our kids learn that they too have emotions that matter, that get your attention, that you are there also for them and their external brain to help digest some of the hardness that has just happened. Something that's in the kind of the long game, not in the fire setting or fire putting out stage, is the the kind of narrative or, or long-term story that develops when a lot of the general energy of a family um, swirls around high needs of one or two kids in the family. And that overall narrative might be that the siblings learn to resent either the child or the parent um, in their home for not, for, for sucking up that kind of attention that they too innately need. Um, and so you might find that sibling relationships are very strained, competitive, or um, passive aggressive in some way, that there's a, an attempt on the sibling's behalf to try and gain control or get revenge almost is that feel and, and to not discipline a child for experiencing that, but for checking in about, I can see why this would develop and how do we work together to undo the resentment piece. A couple of things I would suggest there. One would be educate your other kids about the needs of the child that gets dysregulated often. Some very generic brain science talk, right, about every brain is slightly different and therefore it responds to situations in the world differently. And if one part of the brain is not yet fully developed, it will struggle with coping with things like change. So you might see that so-and-so, right, your brother, your sister, when we want to go to the park, kind of freaks out before we go. And that anger can be hard for you to watch. And I want you to know I've got it. You know, it's it's my job as a parent. We're going to work that out. But I know it's hard to witness what's happening for your brother or sister is this, right? That it's not their fault, that they can't, they can't transition easily. Um, and that we're working on that, right? We're working on learning ways that work for their brain to be able to move from the house to the van, from the van to the park, to the park, to the pool, to the pool, home, to bed, right? Um, and so some, some basic high-level education that will help detach the problem from their siblings so that they don't want to lash out back at the sibling for uh, soaking up all the energy in the home and the the attention given. Um, the other piece to be aware of is that the, the long-term narrative can be that um, kids who are more neurotypical or who can regulate e- more easily notice and can assess the stress in the home 
and the stress put on the parent. And so if the parents are really stressed out, which is understandable, uh, the dynamic that can slowly occur over time is that kids who are more neurotypical will try to take care of the parent. We call that parentification, right? When they move into role of, I will take care of my mom's emotions. I will, because I can feel the amount of stress and I feel bad for her and I want to rescue or make it okay or make it better. Another version of that might be that they become the kid who's perfect, right? Who strives to be easy, who wants to get the good grades to cause the least stress, to say yes to everything, to not go through normal developmental stages of pushback or challenging of parents, which we want our kids to do to get that stage of independence um, embedded in them. But what what they might what might get stolen from them is the idea that they're allowed to walk that because they don't want to be adding more to the family stress load. And so we don't want kids to feel like they have to compensate for the difficulties felt for other kids in the home. So just a dynamic to watch for. Those are nuanced things to have conversations about. So I can't address in every way, shape or form how you would do that with kids. But if you're struggling with that, I'd encourage you to reach out to a professional to have those conversations. And if you're partnering in, if you're parenting in a partnership to have a dialogue about how do we together approach these dynamics to help that shift. And um, some of the proactive things you can do is ensure that you're intentional about spending really quality one-on-one time with the kids in your home. So what does connection mean for each child? It might look different for each one, and that's okay. It's same is not equal, right? So tailor it to what works for each child, but ensure that that child has space in, in being with you to ask questions, to feel love from you, to feel, um, a calm environment around them, right? This not in a state of managing somebody else's dysregulation. So how do you build that in as a structure to the way you live as a family? I will leave it at that because it's a big topic and I have lots to say, but I I did want to address, um, a couple of the major dynamics that tend to happen that, um, that are somewhat unavoidable, but there are things that you can do if you detect it early. And so I'd encourage you to be watchful and mindful about those. Thanks for spending time with me today. Remember to check out the show notes for related resources. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram, or you can also subscribe to my online learning page at my.thrive-life forward slash LRL series, where you'll get updates, extra tools for your toolkit. And if there's a topic that you want me to cover in this podcast, please shoot me a message. I would love to hear from you. Shoulder to shoulder with you, knee deep in this mud. I will see you back here next time.